Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hello, my fellow suffering beings. Today, we've got some deep and maybe for some of you uh, rather provocative success strategies from the man who's been called the Yoda of Silicon Valley. Jerry Colonna is a former venture capitalist turned practicing Buddhist turned leading executive coach. He's co-founder and CEO of an executive coaching firm called Reboot, where I'm a longtime client. Jerry's also a friend of mine and a repeat guest on this show. He's out with a new book called Reunion, Leadership and the Longing to Belong. To be super clear, right from the jump, Jerry has a very broad view of leadership, so you don't have to be a boss to benefit from his advice. Whatever professional role you play, or even if you don't work and are a parent or a volunteer, Wherever you're coming from, you do have a sphere of influence. And if you don't get your shit together, uh, Jerry's argument is that you're going to pass your pathology, your ancient traumas, your ancient storylines along to everybody else in your orbit. Jerry calls his process radical self-inquiry, and it's made a huge difference for me. One of his signature questions has long been, and I love this, although I, actually it's been painful to, to mull it, but I love it anyway. Uh, how are you complicit in the conditions you say you don't want? It's really such a compelling question. And it's not about victim blaming. It's about taking a look at whether you're contributing to the stuff you're complaining about. And if you really wrestle with it, you might not like what you see. As the old saying goes, uh, self-knowledge is always bad news. Jerry's new book is all about adding a new and broader question on top of that already pretty tough and touchy one. The new question is, how have I been complicit in and benefited from the conditions in the world that I say I don't want. In other words, Jerry's now arguing that it is not enough for us to just get our shit together, but that we also have a responsibility to address the problems in the larger world. Jerry freely admits his new thesis uh, may draw some criticism and that his suggested remedies are also quite experimental. So uh, have a listen and uh, let us know what you think. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You will always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre 
from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business and more. The I've been checking out recently is called Our Share of Night. It's technically, I guess, a horror, but it's definitely literature. I mean, it's incredibly well-written, absolutely fascinating. And it really does rhyme with some of the themes that we explore uh, on this show. I highly recommend it, although I'm only uh, through the, the first 15, 20% of it. But already, I highly recommend it. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. Jerry Colonna, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to have you. Congratulations on your new book. Thank you. You know, a book is always a labor, and this was really a labor of love. Yeah. This was a hard one. Yeah. But it feels really important for me. Well, we'll get into it. Before we get into it, let's just lay some groundwork or level set for people who might not know much about your work. I'll put links in the show notes to your previous appearances, but in case people haven't had a chance to digest that, let's just start with some definitional things. You talk about leadership. Does that include everybody or um, am I only in the target audience if I'm a boss? Oh, it definitely includes everybody. By including everybody, it's a subtle way of taking our standard definitions of leadership, that is association with power, and helping people realize that we each have the possibility of leading. And what does that mean? It means being able to affect those around us in some capacity. And even at a minimum, we have the possibility of leading ourselves. And that's a very broad definition, but thanks for that. This is not just for CEOs. Right. It's good to get that out there right, yeah. right at the jump. I'm not a CEO, and I've found your work to be incredibly helpful. So let's talk about some of the, and again, before we dive into the new book, because the new book really builds on your prior work, including your last book. What is radical self-inquiry? Yeah, that's a sort of catchphrase I developed to describe in some ways, well, maybe because of this audience, they'll get it, the kind of overlap between deep psychological understanding of oneself, but also the insight that comes from a dedicated practice, sometimes showing up as meditation. The working definition that I play with is the process by which the masks that we wear are slowly and compassionately stripped away so that we have no place left to hide. Hmm. And I focus on the radical piece of the self-inquiry process simply because we tend not to do it. We tend to wear a persona, and worse yet, we tend to believe that persona. And then we get into a lot of trouble. Yeah, I know people who do that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so how do you do radical self-inquiry if you're not a Jerry Colonna client? Well, there are simple questions that I often encourage people to ask of themselves. My most famous question, the one that almost invariably provokes tears, is simply to ask somebody how they are. And what I always add as a caveat is, no, really. Like, stop bullshitting, stop spinning, stop telling me what you think I want to know. Stop telling me what you tell yourself, 
but just pause and take a look at yourself. That's emblematic of a process. Yes. If we think about what happens on a meditation cushion, meditation, in effect, is an act of inquiry. I'm noticing stuff. I'm noticing what's happening. I'm not becoming attached to that which I see, but I'm noticing it. I'm not looking away. So shame arises. I look at it. Guilt arises. I look at it. I have a negative thought. I look at it. And then imagine carrying that, not so distractedly, but carrying that throughout your day. So that when someone turns to you and says, how are you? You actually can answer honestly. The how are you question is very powerful when you administer it and follow up. I think there's another question you ask that people can self-administer that that really, I find it extremely provocative. And this is like, I think, in my view, your signature question, which is, how am I complicit in the conditions I say I don't want? That's a powerful question, right? I mean, I, I learned that question in psychoanalysis. And to be clear, I've been in psychoanalysis now for 30 years um, and you're some, still so fucked up. Like, oh, yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Someday I'll figure it out. Um, and when I talk about that question, there's two parts of that question that are really, really important. The first is complicit as a word. Oftentimes, this question gets misinterpreted as how am I responsible for the conditions in my life? And I want to talk about why that's a misinterpretation. Complicit, it relates to the word accomplice. You are driving the getaway car. You're not sticking up the bank teller. And that's a really important distinction because as you know from our work, the things that set us up, the things that sort of start to define our character, the things that in my techno babble speak, I start to call things like subroutine, right? The technical code that runs beneath the surface. We didn't invent that. We were given that. And that's a really important distinction. So, for example, I might have been given the belief system that anger uh, is such a negative experience that it should be wiped out. And so what do I do with that feeling? I become anxious. Anxious is better than anger, right? That's a belief system. So we're complicit in that. The second half of the question is super important as well. I say I don't want, mm. not I don't want. Now, why do I make that distinction? Because most of the time that we walk around with, let's call it that kind of whiny complaint that we have about the world, we don't tend to look at the benefit of the behavior we say we don't want. So a classic example is, I am so busy. Dan, do you know how busy I am? I am so busy. Oh, the world is such a pain, right? And a radical self-inquiry question is, well, what benefit do you get from being busy? And you can see the look in people's eyes when they answer it honestly. Oh, you mean I'm complicit in this? Or even more, oh, it's kind of a mask, isn't it? I'm busy, 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 because if I sit still... I may not like what I hear. Right. For me, I use how am I complicit as a nice little riddle or a koan or something to puzzle on 
and wrestle with in my own life, and I usually apply it to this very issue. Right. I've quit so many jobs. I, I was I quit Nightline, then I quit ABC News altogether. Now I'm I'm mostly just focused on the podcast. Right. Um, I keep quitting things, and I'm so busy. And so I I like to ask myself, what's going on there? And I think this is a thing. It's helpful to have to be yeah. a client of yours, but I think this is a thing people can do at home in their Absolutely. own lives. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the inflection point is that moment when we start complaining, quote, again, mm. and we start repeating the patterns. You know, for me, I use journaling as a way to sort of notice what's going on inside of me. Even though I've got 30 years of practice of like looking inward, I still need to set the day with like, okay, what was happening for me yesterday? Why was I feeling this way? It takes 20 minutes. It's yeah. not a big deal. But in that space, I start to create a sense of understanding. God, this is happening again. Maybe I should spend some time with that. Get curious about it. Yes, get curious about it. That is a quick tour through your previous oeuvre. Um, <laughs> what's the new book? How does it build? Well, one of the fundamental belief systems that I have about leadership and those who hold power is that when they don't use say, radical self-inquiry, to examine their own structures. They run the risk of, dare I say, bullying people or spreading their toxic shit all over people. Yeah, he emphasized bullying because that's a problem that I've had in my own right. work life. I'm bullying myself and then taking it out on other people. That's right. That's right. Because early on, you learn to be bullied. Yes. And so you then internalize that yes. as a means of relating to the world. Yes. So that's the basic supposition is that in order to grow as an adult, really, not just a leader, but as an adult, we need to start to understand with curiosity these structures so that we understand why and who we are. And that leads to the second declaration that I often make, which is a kind of obvious statement. Better humans make better leaders. And it's an obvious statement. Of course. And yet, we don't really understand why we don't have good leadership. We just think of people as like, you know, good or bad, good or bad. We don't really understand what's motivating them. And that is a really important understanding. I think it's been very useful for myself and for those who follow the work. But what I've come to understand is that that's insufficient, that it's not enough. And that there's a corollary to that first complicity question, which is how have I been complicit with and benefited from the conditions in the world I say I don't want? Hmm. And that in the world is a really important flip because as every wisdom tradition has taught us, we don't live in a bubble. We interact. We have responsibilities. Call it our interbeingness, call it our interdependence, but what happens in one continent impacts another continent. What happens in another person impacts me. And what happens with me impacts another person. And so I started looking at the question of how have I benefited from conditions, I'll use a term I use in the book, systemic othering. The process by which whomever it is, however they identify, doesn't fit a normative structure, the dominant normative structure of whatever society, whatever grouping of people, 
how do I benefit from that? Because I don't want to see that happening. And equally important, what might I be willing to give up that I love to see the changes that I actually want to see? All right, so you just said two really important questions there. I think we should yeah. double click on them to be a little sure. business douchey. Um, the, I, not my favorite You've been expression. hanging around too many startups. Too many board meetings. Um, <laughs> double click on that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, now next time you get close to something, like you get close to the point that I want to make, I'll say, yeah, you're in the fair way. That's another <laughs> common expression uh, I hear in board meetings. Anyway, how have I been complicit and how have I benefited from the conditions in the world that I say I don't want? Right. Let's just start there. How do you answer that for yourself? A good example would be um, when I was 18, 19 years old, I almost dropped out of school because I couldn't afford to pay my tuition. And in Reboot, my first book, I tell the story of this really kind uh, English professor, Robert Greenberg, who I was crying to one day. And to be clear, my tuition was $750 a semester. I went to Queens College, City University of New York. And I said, I, I have to drop out. I can't continue. And he said, well, that's not going to happen. And he awarded me a scholarship. Hmm. He was the sole judge. And the scholarship paid my tuition for the next two years. It's a great story. It's a true story. It's a really powerful story. I earned his admiration. What did the fact that I looked like him how might that have impacted his decision? And I'm not saying it was the only reason. He was an older white man. I was a young white man. I'm not saying that that's the reason. But isn't it important, isn't it incumbent upon me to ask the possibility that there may have been somebody else equally deserving? And why did they not get that? And for what reason? And that's just a simple little way of saying, wait a minute, I might have benefited. Because if I didn't get that scholarship, Dan, I would have dropped out. And if I had dropped out, I wouldn't have been your coach at any point in your life because it would have been a very different trajectory for me. So once you answer that question, then what? How does it change how you do life? Well, the second half of the question, right? What is it that I want to see in the world? What do I want? I have a colleague. She is a brilliant coach. She doesn't feel comfortable traveling to the state of Florida because in the state of Florida, she could be arrested if she doesn't use a particular bathroom. What the fuck? Why? Because somebody somewhere thinks this is a threat? That's not a condition in the world I want to see. And yet I can walk into many different spaces without worrying about whether or not Someone's going to call into question my belonging in that space, my safety. I have a colleague who can't travel to one of the 50 states. What? And we all have colleagues, friends, family members who have experienced variations of this same theme, whether it's anti-Black racism, anti-immigration feelings, anti-Semitism, transphobia, homophobia. What benefit do I get from identifying as white, as male, as straight, as cisgender? Just to ask that question is radical, isn't it? 
And what kind of world do I want to see? You ask, what do you do then? How about that second question? What would I have to give up so that my colleague can travel to the state of Florida and feel safe? What would I have to do to make that world, to at least try? I think these are morally profound questions to ask. I think it's a responsibility that we have. What have you done about your colleague? What have you given up? She would say to you, this is Virginia Bauman who uh, contributed an essay to the book. The afterword of the book takes a turn that is somewhat unexpected. I had three different friends, all identifying from different social locations, write about their experience of belonging. And I think that there are many things that I have a responsibility to do. One of them is to do what I'm doing right now, is to speak up and to speak out and to raise questions. I've earned a certain amount of credibility in the world. I've earned a certain amount of trust from the work that I have done, from my being. I could choose to continue to do what I've always done, become this like wise elder sage on the stage, or I can lean into a very, very difficult space. And I've chosen to do the latter. That's one step. So there's a, in terms of giving up, there's a kind of giving up of comfort by wading into these issues of... Or status. Yeah. Well, status how? Well, I could be canceled, right? Right. Well, who's going to cancel you? you? I could say it wrong. I see, I see. I could be wading into a space that other people would not be comfortable having me speak about. We're doing this interview a couple of weeks before the book comes out. We'll post right as the book comes out. But are you nervous? Uh, maybe between now and then you're going to get canceled? Is that what's on your mind? It's on my mind, clearly. I wouldn't have brought it up. But it's... I was talking to someone yesterday, and she said to me, I'm going to ask you a question that is really difficult for me to ask. What right do you have to speak about these issues? And it's a great question. And then I said, I want to reframe the question, if you don't mind. What right do I have not to speak about these issues? Yeah, you could reframe it as what responsibility do I have? That's right. That's right. Because I know where the problem is. The problem is not on the people who bear the burden. And yet part of our structured response in order to maintain a certain safety, an existential safety, part of our structured response is we make those who bear the burden do the labor. Mm. So what's the risk? Am I worried about being canceled? I Maybe, I don't know. You know what's a really precious thing for me that I worry about giving up? I sit down, and you tell me if this is true. My understanding is that for some bizarre reason, I start talking and people calm down. Right? You're nodding, so it makes mm -hmm. sense to you. I like that about me. <laughs> I like being seen as the guy who makes people feel better. Mm -hmm. It answers some really deep, profound existential questions of my own. Am I worthy of love, safety, and belonging? Oh, look what I do for this person. That's great. That's how my ego goes out for a dance. What if I lose that? I thought a lot about that, more during the writing than now. Hmm. Now I'm in like, come on, LFG, let's fucking go. I'm not backing down, you know. But that's the fear. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, my fear, we talked about this privately, my fear for you with a book like this isn't that you get canceled because I think the folks 
who generally lead the charge on cancellations, you're talking about the stuff that they agree with. Right. Uh, my fear would more be that some percentage of the population is just tired of having this conversation. I mean, I see it because... You get tired. No, well, yes, but we do a lot of stuff about race and gender and social justice on the show. We did it hardcore during BLM and we continue to do it, but we get negative comments every time. And this audience, as you would think, would be very open to this stuff. And I'm sure there are plenty of people who are. Yeah, but I do see in my personal life, in the people I know, a real fatigue around this. And so that, I think, is the risk. And that may happen. I run the risk of being corrected. I run the risk of being told I've got a completely wrong point of view. But what's going to happen is going to happen. Coming up, Jerry Colonna talks about how to avoid the pitfalls of virtue signaling and self-righteousness. He talks about the term reunion. What does that mean and how it relates to the stories of our ancestors and what he means by the longing to belong. The weather is getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found Quince. Now I've got high-quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at Quince.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week, and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home and I want to look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff, but uh, I want to be comfortable. And uh, the Quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. For me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good looking stuff at low prices. Not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash happier. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash happier. Just go to Indeed.com slash happier right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash happier. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's Mental Health Awareness Month, and while meditation 
is good for your mental health. It can also be challenging, but the 10% Happier app makes starting meditation easy. Download the app for free wherever you get your apps. You get very practical in the book, and we're going to go there. We're staying at a bit of a high level here, but we will get to that. How do you manage talking about the stuff without the pitfall of virtue signaling or self-righteousness, which is so often a turnoff? Like I've mentioned this before on the show, but there's a TV show that I love called Letter Kenny. It's an obscure Canadian sitcom. Have you seen it? No. Okay, it was very funny. And uh, there's actually a sequel on the air now. You can see it on um, Hulu called Shorzy. Many of the main characters in Letterkenny are white farmers. Um, but that has this subtle, very stealth and skillful social justice part. Mm-hmm. There's this character named Squirrely Dan, <laughs> who every once in a while in conversations with his other beer drinking buddies will talk about something he learned from his feminist studies teacher. (laughs) And he does it in ways that are like utterly unpretentious. Right. And I always think of like, let me be squirrely Dan. Like I I care about these issues. Right. But I want to do it in a way that isn't like, oh my God, like this guy's showing off or he's trying to show what a good person he is. And do you think about that? And how do you manage it? I don't. And maybe as a result, I come across... (laughs) Not like Swirly Dan. <laughs> uh, I don't worry about it, but I see it. And I know what you're talking about. And maybe I'm guilty of it. Hmm. And if I am, I'd like to know if I'm guilty of it. Because I think that performative allyship does a real disservice to what it is that we're trying to create. And I'll go back to something. This is a quote from the book. And I tell this story about my daughter who very powerfully once said to me, Dad, it's not enough to be an ally. You have to be a co-conspirator. And Emma is fierce as fuck. So maybe this is a benefit of having children who just cut through your bullshit. And I grew up, or they grew up, calling me out. But look, the fear of that, I think, first of all, we should be aware of it. But the fear of that should not let us stop us from saying what needs to be said. I a thousand percent agree with that. And and I'm, I have no, I'm not in your mind, yeah. so I'm not speaking for yeah. you at all. But I can tell you from my own mind, yeah. from reporting live on the scene in my own psyche, that there have been times where I've noticed on the show or in meetings that I'm showing off because I'm looking for some sort of ego gratification. I am, to use the term of art in social justice uh, spaces, cookie seeking. I'm looking Uh, for that cookie, that hit of ego gratification where people around the table in a meeting are like, that's a good guy. He's, you know, I've just given some lecture about how we got to do the right thing. And, but part of me is looking for something instead of actually trying to help. I'm just as guilty of that, of cookie seeking for all aspects of my life, <laughs> not just in this area. So guilty as charged because I'm a human being, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I want to be loved. Yeah. And I can just as easily confuse and conflate a cookie with love. Mm. But I'm also pissed off. I'm also sincerely worried. Mm. I'm also wondering what the hell is going on with our world? And those are genuine feelings, let's just say, as well. And 
when I say, as a parent, I do not want my descendants to think that I didn't try, you know, the descendants I'm worried about aren't in a position to give me cookies because they're not even born yet. Mm -hmm. I'll be long gone when the people I'm most concerned about are looking back on my efforts. Those are great points. So the book is called Reunion. What do you mean by that? And I would love to talk about this process as something anybody listening could do, whether they have a coach or not. I, I think it's precisely that. So reunion is the term that I came to describe what I think is the pre-work that needs to be done. And the pre-work is reuniting with what I refer to as the not just our ancestors, but the, the real stories of our ancestors. What was their experience like? Reuniting with the dismembered, unremembered parts of ourselves that we sort of lock away so that we can then move towards reuniting with the rest of us. See, I suspect that a lot of efforts, especially within corporations, to create what I would refer to as systemic belonging fall short because the people who have the power actually don't do the work. Mm. They take the actions, they tick boxes, they complete surveys, but they don't actually look at themselves and they don't look at their own experiences. We've had conversations about this before. Understanding from whence we came and how that influences who we are is absolutely essential in this process. For example, as I write about in the book, I have two sets of ancestors, one acknowledged that I grew up with understanding, which were my Italian-American or Italian ancestors, and the other were my father's biological parents, Irish immigrants in the 1920s in New York, and his mother gave him up for adoption. Now, there's a whole subplot in the book about the fact that my father didn't discover this until he was 21 on his wedding day. And so I asked the question quite deeply, how could he know to whom he belonged if the woman who gave birth to him and who was his mother for 18 months gave him up for whatever reason? And how could he belong to the people who adopted him when that mother was the one who screamed at the back of the wedding church, you're not my son, you're not my son, because she was so angry about who he was marrying, my mother. Whoa. Yeah. And what did that do to his own sense of belonging? And consequently, what did it do to my sense of belonging? Hmm. Because I grew up knowing this, but I denied it. I didn't want to know it. And I make the point that I think that there are stories like this in many, many families. Stories of what our ancestors did and did not do. What happened to them and the story that they made up. And oftentimes, for those who look like me, descendants of Europeans, it's like an up and to the right movement towards resilience. Right? We don't talk about the grandfather who was a fascist or the great-grandfather was a fascist. We don't talk about that. We don't talk about what their experience was like. We don't talk about, I have an ancestor who may have been transported to Australia as a convict in 1804. 
leaving a five-year-old son and dying there. We don't talk about that. And the lack of talking about that undercuts our ability to do what our teachings tell us to do all the time, which is to be compassionate and to be empathetic. Say more about exactly how we would do this work and how that work would lead to being more compassionate. So I want to be clear. Not everyone is going to have the capacity to figure out the stories of their ancestors. But everyone has the capacity to imagine certain things. I was talking about my colleague, Virginia, who offered an essay. She asks a very, very powerful question because she, she spends time in her essay talking about the family tree and how obsessed the family was. They had this beautifully bound book that linked all the ancestors all the way back to Switzerland. And she asked a simple question. Who were the queer members of that family tree? Hmm. Yeah, you just smile because guess what, dude? We both have queer members of our family tree. It's as if being transgender is something that just got invented. Or as if being queer is something that just got invented. Okay, that's bullshit. That's what I'm talking about is being able to connect that. Okay, so let's just expand our imagination and imagine that 10% of your ancestors, just like 10% of your ancestors may have had mental health issues. 10% of your ancestors may have experienced some form of othering. Now, talk to me about trans rights in the United States. Talk to me about your obligations as someone who might hold power to think about that. And just for a little extra juice, think about what life you would like your son who is still forming who he is what if what emerges is an identity that doesn't fit a norm how would you like him to feel 30 years from now okay now do you feel the empathy just to put a fine point on it by getting a sense that your family tree consists of people who were either a deeply flawed and conflicted or b part of marginalized groups and may have suffered as a consequence, you can take all of that information and extrapolate it out into your view of the world where you feel empathy for people who are making mistakes or you might disagree with, and of course, empathy for people who are currently being persecuted in one way or another. I think for me, because again, I put myself through a process that, because you know me, I can't ask you to do something that I myself have not done. It feels false and out of integrity. And I put myself through this process and I, using an active imagination, using some research, imagine what my mother's mother, an immigrant from Palo de Col and Puglia in Southern Italy, what was her experience like coming through Ellis Island? How close was she to having a wrong check mark on her lapel that said, no, you have to go back because you might have TB. And what's the difference between that person and a mother from Guatemala or Venezuela on the southern border of the United States? What's the difference between those two? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have a broken immigration policy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The system is completely screwed up. But you were a longtime journalist. Do you remember 20 years ago talking about the Gang of Eight and immigration reform? Yeah, yeah I do. Never right? happened. Never happens. 
And yet there are actual human beings, including children on the border right now, suffering. And you can look at them less as statistics wherever you are politically and more as actual human beings if you could interpolate back into your personal and family history to get a sense of the fact that people whose DNA you are carrying around right now had the exact same experience. That's right. Or close enough, maybe not exactly the same, but close enough, because we got to be careful of false equivalencies, but close enough to be able to see the interrelationship between those two. You talk about belonging before. So on one level right now, we're talking about looking back and seeing that we may have had people in our family trees who are dealing with versions of the struggles that other populations in our culture right now are dealing with. But you also talked about belonging, which is a more diffuse idea. And you talked about your father's feeling of belonging on his wedding day as the woman he thought it was his mom is shrieking from the back of the church. What is it about this interpolation of this going back and looking at your family tree that can teach you about belonging? And why does that matter now today? Well, very specifically, the subtitle of the book is Leadership and the Longing to Belong. And I speak about the longing to belong because I think it's one of those base universal experiences. So when we encounter someone saying, this is unfair, this is unjust, if we put it through the lens of, wait, just like me, they want something. Just like me, what do they want? They want to feel loved, they want to feel safe, and they want to know that they belong in some place. Even if I disagree with what they're saying, they want those same things, right? Because we're all human. Okay, we start from that proposition. And then we start to explore, who am I? And in the forward to the book, Parker Palmer, my friend and teacher, wrote the core secondary question is, whose am I? To whom do I belong? Because I would argue Having cut ourselves off from that story, having cut ourselves off for this myth of resilience, my ancestors made it through, why can't you? We actually cut ourselves off from the true story of to whom we belong, for good and for ill, or admirable people or not admirable people. By reconnecting and reuniting with that, my hope, and I don't know, this is an experiment, My hope is that we can create the conditions for the longing to belong to be answered. In whatever sphere we have power. Yes, it could be a family, it could be a a business, it could be a volunteer organization, a a classroom. Exactly. So let me just talk about how this could work. I've done a little bit of ancestor work, just looking back at my family, which is populated by a remarkable amount of crooks and cowards. Mm. Um, And I find that, intriguing and a little funny and Mm -hmm. um but also poignant um and i can look back at you know especially the jews who came over from russia and i think about a lot about my great grandfather who and this is sort of sad and poignant in a ways like his name was lebowitz but he changed it to lebau l-e-b-a-u because he thought it would sound french Mm -hmm. and he ended up being a criminal and uh, went to jail and then took his own life but there's a way in which you can shove that into a larger narrative of, well, generally speaking, these scrappy Jews from Eastern Europe came over, and by the time my dad's generation hit, they were mainstream, very successful. White. 
white, uh, at this point they'd achieved whiteness. And there's a way in which you can like get up onto the uh, the highest rungs of the ladder and forget about all the struggles. Like I'm here, I'm done. Like we did this, yay. And why can't you? Yes, exactly, exactly. So instead, what you're saying is, look back at all the messiness and the yes, grit of this whole exactly. story, and then you can look out at folks who you might be tempted to say, well, what are you complaining about? We did it, and be like, no, 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 no. There are reasons baked into the structure of our society that have held people back. Well, and just look at the whole question. When did Jews become white? Yeah, I actually know some Jews now who still don't consider themselves white because of the amount of discrimination right. they endured. Yeah, right. I consider myself white. Right, which means, to use a term I use in the book, so you became racialized as white. Yes. At some point, that wasn't true. Yes. And at some point, I mean, just to get poignant about it, your son carries the DNA of people whose status was ambiguous. Yes. And I think that there's a moral responsibility to not forget. I think there's a self-interested case for this. So let me just make the case, see if I can build the case. In Buddhism, it's often talked about, and in psychology too, that you know the route to compassion, or one route to compassion is to see your own suffering and learn to get comfortable with it. So for my son is to understand that in his forebears include a lot of messy characters who were struggling to fit in in this country and weren't considered mm -hmm. uh, mainstream. And to get comfortable with that and to be able to have some equanimity with his own family's history of suffering and hopefully with his own messiness too. And then to be able to use that tenderizing mm -hmm. like we do with meat, mm -hmm. um, to be able to look at other people with some degree of empathy and compassion. Oh yeah, as you said before, just like me, yeah. they are struggling, whether it be with interpersonal stuff or with social, political, cultural stuff. This process of, I like to think of it as inexorable, although it can get interrupted, of getting cool with your own stuff and then leading to you being cooler with other people's stuff. And I think the self-interest there is that we as humans, and people have heard me bang on about this a lot, <laughs> we know the thing that makes us happy is the quality of our relationships. And so if you do this work, the quality of your relationship with other human beings in your orbit and also with the culture and the world writ large and how you view things on the news and on social media will warm up. So I think this is all to the good. It's not like you have to wear a hair shirt and suffer exactly. and just it's not focus about on guilt. the Jerry's giving champ. things up. No, and, no, no, no. It no. will improve your life. It will improve everybody's lives. Yes. Well, because your life and your life is yeah, part of yes, everybody's yes, life. Yes, and yes. look, when I work to alleviate my suffering, I alleviate others' suffering. Yes. When I work to alleviate their suffering, I alleviate Correct. my suffering. Correct. Because we're in a double helix. Thank God we are. It's part of what makes us human. Right. But this is my attempt at Squirrely Dan, because I like to inject self-interest in because... Because you want to acknowledge that that is a motivation. Yeah. Well, I mean, because I see my own greed quite clearly. Sure. Uh, but I don't, to use Jerry's term, yeah. I don't make it bad. Exactly. I was just going to jump on the word greed. You taking care of you is not greedy. Well, it's a term of art within Buddhism of, you know, just desire. Sure. Yes. So, and I, I can see impulses that go beyond just taking care of myself and my family. I can see impulses toward world domination. I can, you know, all of that. That's just part of the human repertoire. You don't have to make it bad. Just see that it's there. It's the organism trying to protect itself, et well, cetera, et cetera. Well, you know what makes it bad? Pretending it's not there. Yeah, yes. 
Yes, acting right? that, out blindly. That's right. That gives it all the power in the world. And, and we all suffer as a result of denying those impulses. Coming up, Jerry talks about how we can learn to do our first works over the difference between equality and equity and his framing of content and container to help guide good leadership. I love cats. I make no secret of that. We've got four cats. But here's the thing about felines. They poop a lot. You need kitty litter and you need that kitty litter to do the job, which is why I'm proud to recommend Tidy Care Alert, which has long lasting ammonia control. So your house or your apartment or your yurt or wherever you live does not smell like you have four cats or however many cats you happen to have. No judgment here. It's low dust and lightweight, which means no lugging heavy bags of cat litter up the stairs, and it's from the brand most often recommended and personally used by veterinarians. Tidy Care Alert uses color-changing crystals to detect potential concerns and help put your mind at ease. Let Tidy Care Alert help keep an eye on your cat's health. It's spring, and that means it's graduation season, and I've got an idea for an incredibly fun graduation gift or party favor. Did you know that you can get personalized M&Ms? You can choose from over 20 colors and add your graduate's name, graduation-themed graphics, or photos, which are printed directly on the candy. I recently got a sample of some of these personalized M&Ms. Uh, they showed up in my mailbox. They got my face on them, which makes it a little bit awkward for me to eat them personally. I'm doing it anyway. The M&Ms I got also include the words 10% happier, to which I have a deep attachment. I was kind of thrilled uh, when I saw them. I was wondering if they were a gift from somebody on the uh, 10th anniversary of the 10% happier book. Turns out they weren't. They were a gift from uh, M&Ms, who are now a sponsor of this show. So thank you, M&Ms. Uh, for sponsoring this show and for the delicious treat. You can visit MMS.com to create your own unique custom gifts and memorable party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code HAPPIER to receive 15% off your next order. So in order to do this reunion process to make peace with our ancestors, you and I have plenty of financial advantages that allow us to hire people to help us learn about our family tree. But it could be just as simple as talking to your parents or your grandparents. It could be as simple as, as you said before, just making imagination leaps. It's worth saying a lot of black Americans don't know much about their ancestors. Because of diaspora. Yes. Because of enforced yes. diaspora. Yes. Absolutely. So it might be just that you do this work through your imagination. Or you do this work in simple conversations. I mean, I had a client come up to me at one of our boot camps. Boot camps are these immersive experiences that we do, long weekend kind of experience. And it was early on in writing the book and uh, I was describing what I was going on to. And he pulled me aside and he said, he was from the Dominican Republic. And he said, Jerry, I'm, I'm having an insight. I have grown up my entire life with a sense of overwhelming guilt. And I said, okay, tell me about this. And he said, and what keeps flashing through my mind is that my great-grandfather raped my great-grandmother mm. because he had enslaved her or as part of the consequence. And he just starts weeping. Now, where did those tears come from? 
right? You can argue epigenetic trauma. So I said to him, he quieted down. I said, what was her name? And he said, my father never told me. I said, I didn't ask you what your father said. I said, what was her name? Because that woman was dismembered from the family tree. Mm. And part of bringing all of these connections back is to reunite the dismembered parts, not because we can turn around and go back in history and make something abhorrent somehow acceptable, but to acknowledge the truth of that. So when you talk about reunion, I mean, sometimes the term ancestor work gets thrown around and for somebody like me who doesn't like jargon, I can be like, oh, what's this now? Is this going to be like an How or, many times a day do you raise your eyebrows and skepticism? A lot. A lot. <laughs> that is like my resting face. And so like I hear ancestor work, I'm like, oh, my God, is it like an aura reading or a yeah, dolphin healing or whatever? About. No, I know. But I actually think ancestor work is incredibly important because it is, it's the same as doing like internal family systems therapy. You're That's making right. peace with parts of your own personality. That's right. Ancestor work is just looking at like who you are because of course you're carrying around all this stuff from your forebears. That's right. And you want to look at the stuff that your parents never really wanted to talk to you about because that's the shit that's that's in the some crevice in your brain. That's right. Driving your actions. So for me, the guy who put his head in the oven after he lost the family fortune because he became a crook after changing his last name to fit in and all that stuff, that's in me hustling now in lots of ways. Okay. So looking at that seems really helpful. Okay, so let's look at that just sure. for you. And you don't even have to answer this question. But here's a question for you. Mm -hmm. Why did they become crooks? What benefit were they seeking? Belonging. on what, yeah, Belonging. Yeah, yeah. They wanted safety. They wanted to belong. What were the conditions that those crooks were leaving? Oh, absolutely. Pogroms. Yes, pogroms, genocide in uh, Eastern Europe. And then they came here and they were treated like shit. And this guy, I think it's so poignant that he changed his name to Labau. Yeah. My assistant, Amy, who is an amateur genealogist, she found newspaper articles about this guy. And uh, the FBI was on him. He was like, it was nuts. And, you know, you can view it as mildly amusing, and it is. But also there's something deep there and it fits into the category of reunion or ancestor work. That's exactly right. I'm just right. trying to help you make your point. That's what well, I'm telling you. Well, you're point. actually making it better than me, which is great. Um, <laughs> I don't know about that. I would recommend James Baldwin's essay, uh, The Price of the Ticket. Huh. And I quote just a little bit from the essay in the book, but the price of the ticket refers to the price of the ticket of whiteness. Mm. And that the price is a disconnection, is a lack of remembering from whence you came. It's right, that transformation right, right. of the names. It's the movement towards safety. Yep. And the result is what you actually lose. I think it's fascinating. I mean, for me, I did the work of saying, oh, wait, so in all of my lineage, there's famine. That's fascinating. I don't know the ways in which that shows up in my life right now, but I'm really curious about that. And being aware of that makes it really hard for me to look away from famine. Mm -hmm. We have flotillas of refugees around the world, just like me, just like my ancestors. You know, you asked me about virtue signaling before. I think that doing some of this work might undercut the virtue signaling because, oh, wait, no, this is real stuff for me. 
so that I can then turn around and use the power and privilege that I have been gifted to actually make a difference on the southern border of the United States in the state of Florida, on the streets of New York. Because what's the point if you're not doing that? What's the point? So we can have more toys at the end of our life? That's bullshit. No, I agree. I'm smiling just because sometimes somebody will say, thank you for something I've done. And I'll be like, there's no point in making money if you can't spend it on your friends. <laughs> you know, uh, a- absolutely. Which means you're going to take me out to dinner. Sure. We are having dinner tonight. Uh, there's another phrase you use in the book, which is do your first works over. What is yeah. that all about? That comes from James Baldwin. And it comes from The Price of the Ticket. And what he uh, says is that it is incumbent upon us, all of us, but especially those who do not attend the church that he attends, meaning especially those who identify as white, to do our first works over. Because, look, we create these structures, we create these understandings in order to become adults, in order to move forward, right? Okay, so the family story is with laughter, our family tree is filled with crooks and cowards, okay? But maybe asking why is an expression of doing your first works over. Hmm. Why? Were they born that way? Chances are probably not. That, to me, is what do your first works over, to go back and reconsider things. Not to get stuck in the past, but so you can move forward with more clarity. So if... Some significant number of people do this work, the work that you're recommending. In particular, I think given your platform, you're going to reach a lot of people who have a lot of power. What's the impact? What do you want to see them do once they've done the RSI, the radical self-inquiry, and then the um, reunion? From that place to then begin to do equity work so that equity work gets transformative, so it can actually stick. Look, this is quixotic. I get it. But I literally think... This is the most important work that we can do. This and saving the damn planet from climate change. The epigraph in one of the chapters is from the Talmud. And in it, Rabbi Tarfin says something to the effect, it is not your responsibility to complete your work, but neither are you at liberty to ignore the work. Mm. Yeah, it's like the Dalai Lama talks about how you got to think about the impact of your work over multiple lifetimes. And you have to do the work. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Even if you will not see any difference in the yeah. world. What would I like? I would like... And by the way, doing the work will make you happier. Doing the work will make you happier. I would even expand and say even more content. Yes. Yeah. Happier, broadly ha- understood. That's right. Yes. That's right. We could give up because the work is so hard. But again, I think about my grandchildren or great-grandchildren. I don't want them sitting on a podcast with Dan Harris and them calling me a coward. I want them to look back and say, he may have failed, but he tried. That's the attitude I want to go out with. Or he helped build what eventually became a more equitable culture. That's it. Belonging for all. What's the difference between equality and equity? I always get confused. I know this is controversial. We've moved in our vernacular from equality of opportunity to equity of opportunity. Equity addresses disproportionate opportunity. Equity addresses disproportionate power. So if we look at, for example, 
and I am not a DEI expert by any stretch of the imagination, and I am not positioning myself as that. I am a curious human when it comes to all of that. But my understanding would be that the, the language around equality can get subsumed into numbers. Mm. How many of this demographic versus how many of that demographic? Whereas when we look at, well, who actually holds power in an organization? Then we start to look at the question of equity mm. and equitable opportunity for advancement. How do we create a leveling of that opportunity? Right. So you can be a major corporation and say, we've got equal employment because uh, we've got X number of people of color, but they're all in the mailroom. Correct. So that's not equity. That's right. How many are in the boardroom? Right. And we have huge problems with equity in corporate America. Oh, yeah. yeah I yeah. mean, how many CEOs are women? Well, I was just going to say, it's not just people of color. It's no. gender, too. And I've seen some data that CEOs of public companies who are female have better stock price performance uh, than the men. I've seen the same data. I don't know the stats behind the data. I don't know the sources of the data, but I've seen the same data. It's interesting. I just interpolate back to my own life. Many, if not most of my best bosses were females. Right. Um, so if people have listened this long, they're buying Jerry's message. They're going <laughs> to do the RSI and they're going to do the reunion and they're going to try to create more equitable either workplaces or homes or classrooms or organizations or whatever their sphere of influence mm -hmm. is. Having said that, sometimes even as you try to increase the sense of belonging on a team, which I have in fits and starts, spent a lot of time thinking about in my own little world. Sometimes somebody's got to go. You have to let somebody go because they're sure, underperforming. So you're not saying, you know, you're wrapping everybody in a warm blanket of you can do no wrong. You still have clear eyes. You still are trying to hit your KPIs, to use another douchey business term, your key performance indicators. Right. Uh, you're still trying to hit your revenue goals, but you're doing it with a different lens. But that doesn't mean you're letting people off the hook forever. Right. So a simpler way to understand this is I often talk about content and container. Every person who runs a business has a responsibility to create a healthy container. That means fiscally sound, that the business can operate in a sustained and self-perpetuating way. And in a similar fashion, that means holding people accountable to their own aspirations to do their job, to creating the conditions for them to do really excellent work. But if we only focus on that aspect, then we create a container that is meaningless. We also have a responsibility to create the content in a way that gives meaning and purpose to the container. And we can apply this thinking to how we lead, how we work with our colleagues, right? Belonging doesn't mean you're not expected to do your job. In fact, you could argue that holding people to the standards that are out there about doing that job is really important, and it helps them. But it's an important version of the content is, where am I creating these contents, these standards of behavior? Where did they come from? What mm -hmm. are my expectations? Is there an unconscious bias that mm -hmm. exists within that? Mm -hmm. And even more, am I over-indexing on, say, profitability because I have unresolved fears about money? I'm laughing because that's exactly the kind of shit I would do. 
Sure. But here's the thing, Dan, all of this is hard. All of this is hard for business people. I get it. But as I like to say, I believe people can walk and chew gum. I was just going to say that. You can build a profitable company that doesn't treat people like shit. That's right. And you can be a really good leader without being an asshole. Yeah. These are not mutually exclusive objectives. Well, actually, I think they're mutually supportive objectives. Well, that's because you've had a good coach. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually true, to give you credit, because I don't think I viewed the world that way before I met you. But I think that none of us view the world. I mean, we were socialized to think it's an either-or yeah. kind of construct. It's, it's you're either this or you're that. You're this or you're that. And I think human beings are much more capable than that. They're much more complex, and they're much more pleasant. And so you might sacrifice a little profit. Okay. But it doesn't mean that the ability of the organization to sustain itself goes away because you've somehow made it safe for everybody to belong. Mm -hmm. You've given me slash us a lot to think about. Is there something I should have asked but failed to ask in, in this discussion? No, you're pretty good at this. No, thank you. I'm mad at myself, actually, as I think back during this interview because I interrupted you a few times, so I apologize. Oh, I loved it. Okay. I, loved I try it. not to do that usually, but maybe it's because I'm so comfortable with you that I did it. Well, it's it's our friendship. Yes. Yeah. Before I let you go, will you just shamelessly plug Reunion and Reboot and anything else you want people to know about? <laughs> Thank you for giving me the permission to be shameless because <laughs> that overcomes my sovereignties. <laughs> yeah. So Reunion, Leadership and the Longing to Belong. And the first book was called Reboot, Leadership and the Art of Growing Up. And all of this is really emblematic of the work that we do at Reboot.io, which is a neat little band of happy warriors who are trying to make a positive dent in the world. Definitely made a positive dent in my world. So mm, thank you. Thank you, Jerry. Thanks again to Jerry. Always great to see my man, Jerry Colonna. Thank you to you for listening. Please go give us a rating or a review. I know I say that all the time, but actually it really does help. Thanks most of all to everybody who works so hard on this show. 10% Happier is produced by Lauren Smith, Gabrielle Zuckerman, Justine Davey, and Tara Anderson. DJ Kashmir is our senior producer. Marissa Schneiderman is our senior editor. Kevin O'Connell is our director of audio and post-production. And Kimmy Regler is our executive producer. Alicia Mackey leads our marketing. And Tony Magyar is our director of podcasts, our fearless leader Nick Thorburn of Islands who wrote our theme. We'll see you all on Friday for a special episode. Uh, a little uh, nugget of goodness from a friend of the show, friend of the pod, Krista Tippett. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. 
Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.